Welcome to Kingdom in Context. And welcome back to Honor of Kings here on Kingdom in Context. We're going to be in the Apocalypse of Baruch, chapters 1 through 5. Now, last week, Baruch saw how the angels were destroying the temple by the orders of God so that the Chaldean army led by Nebuchadnezzar would not be able to actually claim the victory. This week, in chapters 1 through 5, we're going to be looking at how the temple that was destroyed is explained to Baruch that it's not the actual temple to be concerned over. He's actually going to get insight into the temple that both Abraham Moses, even Isaiah and Ezekiel saw in visions, even Enoch. It's going to be a fascinating episode. Let's stick here till the end. And we are back here in episode 15 of Honor of Kings, and we're in the Apocalypse of Baruch. I'm Sean Griffin. Thanks for joining us. I'm here with my amazing co-host. Ken Heidebrecht. Sean, thank you so much for such your kind words all the time. It's just, it's, I don't feel like I, I, you know, stack up to these words that you give me. Uh, nonsense, brother. We're, um, you're a great co-host. We appreciate you being here. Um, and we're having fun in the Apocalypse Brute because we, we've taken a break from Enoch. That's what we did our first, what, 13 episodes? We were looking at the book of Enoch and last week we just, we skipped over here for these next few episodes. We're going to look into the apocalypse of Baruch, who is a scribe of Jeremiah. And so as always here in the honor of Kings, our passion, our goal is to take some of these apocryphal books, these books that used to be in the Canon and even some that were never put in the Catholic Canon, but have been in other canons like the Eastern Orthodox Canon. And we'll look at them and see why aren't they in the modern American canon of 66 that we currently are familiar with in our country in the last 140 years. And so we've jumped into the Apocalypse of Baruch, and, and last week we discovered and discussed just who Baruch was in relationship to Jeremiah and, and what time period he was in, which was in the days of Jeremiah at the, uh, the, the invasion of the southern kingdom of Judah during the time of the Babylonian invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. And... Um, and it's just there's there's so much that connects the book of Baruch with the American canon, wouldn't you say, Ken? Absolutely, hundred percent. It's uh, an amazing book, and I mean, it's it's been in I think it's the Eastern and the Oriental traditions for quite some time. So it seems like us here in the West, where we've been missing out for a little bit. Yeah, and this like last week, this book. I mean, just in the first, you know, we discussed chapters six through ten, and just in those short little chapters. Um, we got to see some amazing insights into things that we don't find in the this current 66 books we have today that actually help us make sense of of the things that are, are missing, particularly you know, like the famous passage in Jeremiah 3 where it talks about the Ark of the Covenant 
you know, being gone. And, and Ken, I've seen documentaries on trying to find the Ark of the Covenant. I've seen um, speculation from pastors as far as like, um, I believe it was even Chuck Missler, the famous, you know, Chuck Missler, uh, who's already passed on. Uh, he used to talk about how there was the theory that Josiah had taken the Ark of the Covenant and hid it um, or secreted it away in some other theories down to Elephantine Island to the secondary temple that, that Solomon had built, which is why in modern day times, the Ethiopians claim they have the Ark of the Covenant, right? Yeah. And so I've seen and heard all these different theories about where the Ark of the Covenant is, but Second Baruch last week just tells us flat out where it is, you know, and that, um, and so if you guys haven't seen that episode, go check out last week and um, I'll flash it up here in the screen for you. This will be the thumbnail uh, that you can look for on the channel, but uh, we had a great time discussing that. So go check that one out. But this week we're going to focus on the temple. What is explained to Baruch in the first five chapters about the temple he was watching being destroyed that he was eventually lamenting over with great sadness. And he was trying to be encouraged that, Hey, this isn't the, this isn't the one to cry over. God's going to restore the true temple. And he shows him what that is. That's right. We can just get into it, Sean, if you want, I can start reading chapter one. Go ahead, brother. All right, guys, we're in chapter one. And it came to pass in the 25th year of Jeconiah, king of Judah, that the word of the Lord came to Baruch, the son of Neriah, and said to him, have you seen all this that people are doing to me? that the evils which these two tribes which remained have done are greater than those of the ten tribes which were carried away captive. For the former tribes were forced by their kings to commit sin, but these two of themselves have been forcing and compelling their kings to commit sin. For this reason, behold, I bring evil upon this city and upon its inhabitants, and it shall be removed from me, sorry, and shall be removed from before me for a time. And I will scatter this people among the Gentiles that they may do good to the Gentiles. My people shall be chastened, and the time shall come when they will seek for the prosperity of their times. It's interesting, Sean, because I've heard that, um, well, this gets into the whole divorce conversation about how Yahweh had, you know, divorced the, the northern tribes and scattered them away, and they were kind of out of covenant. And in my opinion, when we read this, it seems that the southern two tribes of the uh, southern kingdom were described as being almost worse in, in their sins wouldn't you say yeah you're exactly right man that um i know that people think that because of the kings of the of ephraim the kings of the northern kingdom that uh they were wicked they did definitely transgress you know uh what did we talk about last week was it jeroboam that set up the the yes. golden calf in bethel for worship Yes, he did. Yeah. And um, which is, you know, she's going right back to the mistakes of Exodus. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, it's just fascinating to see that they're continuing to make these same mistakes. But Judah, which was the southern kingdom, they were considered to be even worse. And we actually see that in Jeremiah chapter three. Um, so Jeremiah is parroting what what second you know what a brook is saying here in the apocalypse of brook which only would make sense since they were friends contemporaries and you know jeremiah was kind of the the lead prophet to baruch who is his scribe yeah that's right you know and so here in jeremiah chapter three it actually says um i think it's in verse uh um let's Verse 11 says, the Lord said to me, faithless, faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. 
So remember, guys, the, the two houses, they split at one point, and it was still the nation of Israel, but there was the northern ten tribes that were considered the northern kingdom, many times just generically referred to as Ephraim. And then there was the bottom kingdoms that um, I believe consisted mostly of Benjamin and Judah, and that they're just generically referred to as Judah, the kingdom of Judah. But these two kingdoms were within the same nation of Israel. They just were split. And that's part of the, you know, the prophetic you know, promise at the, the gathering at the resurrection is that the two houses will be made one again. But here, you know, Judah itself was being called more treacherous um, than faithless Israel. And so I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, and the, the, the people as a whole were trying to, you know, get their kings to commit the types of sins that they wanted to you know, yeah, partake in. So it's, I mean, it actually goes on to talk about that in Jeremiah 3, verses 12 through 14. It says, Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree. That's part of their occultic practices, by the way. And he yeah. says, You have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless, o faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you, and I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Now that, to me, that last verse there in 14, that's a reference to the, the fulfillment, the, the consummation of all things, the, the resurrection, uh, where they're actually being brought mm -hmm. to Zion. Now, if I'm not mistaken, that means this Jeremiah 3 passage right here, where the Lord is speaking through Jeremiah, and says, talk to faithless Israel, They've already been scattered at this point, haven't they, Ken? Yes, they have. Yeah, the Assyrians have already come and taken them and spread them across the the world at that time, and yeah, they're gone. Yep. And he's telling them to return, and I will not look upon you in anger, as verse twelve says. I will not be angry forever. And then in verse fourteen, he he continues to say, "When you, if you return, I will give you the results, the the you know the inheritance of the covenant, which is to take you to Zion." Yeah. So, you know, this is just amazing that he's still speaking covenant language to them and he's still giving them the promises of the covenant. Even though they've already been scattered out of the land, the quote unquote divorced from the land, they were not divorced from the relationship. They were just divorced from the privilege of living in the geography of the land, you know. That's right. And I just think that that's an important distinction to understand. And we actually see in Second Chronicles chapter 30, Hezekiah reaffirms this call through Jeremiah many years later, and he tries to actually bring them back and some families from five different tribes do repent and they do come back and they start celebrating the feast with them and keeping the law again. Yeah. So, I, I agree with that hundred percent. And it, it adds to this consistent idea of who Yahweh is, right? He's, he's yeah. not one to remove people completely from obeying his commandments and drawing close to him. Right. He, he does, there are consequences to sin and he, and you know, he is patient and it does come to the point where things need to happen. Like them getting booted out of the land as we see in, Second Chronicles thirty six twenty one, where it says, um, "So the message of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. The land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest, lying desolate until the seventy years were fulfilled, just as the prophet had said." So, I mean, the land needed to lie fallow for seventy years, right? It, it, it Israel wasn't doing that as part of the commandments, allowing the the land itself to lie fallow on the specific times that they were supposed to do that. That's right. Yeah, and I think there's even a mention in Second Baruch where he says the land will finally get its rest, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know if it's in these chapters we're about to go over or not, but um, but yeah, that's I think it's further on down. But 
that's still that's 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 the whole point of what this was talking about they were not basically they were not following the law and keeping the sabbaths like they're supposed to because they were in rebellion for so long and you know we don't actually have a timeline chart prepared right now but if we were to actually talk about how long on this on the timeline charts these guys were not doing the covenant terms you know the whole concept of deuteronomy 27 28 you know they were getting all the curses because they were disobeying the covenant while trying to be in the land and while trying to claim that they were they were that he, yahweh was their god even though they were not being truthful because they were not doing his behavior which are the commandments and they were not keeping the terms of the covenant and there was hundreds of years that were going by though ken is what i'm saying hundreds yeah. of years that they were in rebellion and apostasy and then finally the father's like i gotta kick you out i gotta you, you gotta get out of this area because this was the whole point of you being in this area was prophetic of you being in my house in the future and you and to be in my house and to be in this area you got to be doing my behavior you know and it's just like that's why i brought you in to kick out the, the previous canaanites who weren't doing my behavior you know what i mean and we're being rebellious in the land and, and doing wickedness and you just started doing their same deeds and he's like i gotta kick you out you know so it's like yeah. he's no respecter of persons he just wants us to to um, follow his behavior yeah, to be exactly. in his government yeah and then, in my opinion this ties into the creation model um if I'm not mistaken, Sean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole 70 years of captivity was each year of the 70 was based off of one Sabbath land rest that, that they did not follow. So that would have been equivalent to what? Almost 490 years. That's right. That the land itself, as it is a living entity that we're, you know, intrinsically tied to um, and physiologically tied to. It, Yahweh cares about the whole system, right? That's so right. that was, in my opinion, that was the whole point why they needed to be removed on top, you know, obviously because they were sinful and they weren't listening, but it's all, you know, tied into, into each other. Yeah, absolutely, man. And that, that's why his laws about these Sabbath rests and these, um, what, what seems so foreign and so removed to us in our modern culture, our modern lifestyle, um, when you understand it in relationship to the kingdom to come, it, it all makes perfect sense. You know, because it's the whole point about that millennial reign is when the father returns to his Messiah and his Messiah is walking in the authority that was given to him from the father and is reigning as king of Israel. Um, king over the new Jerusalem that comes down like the whole point is it's a it's a Sabbath rest. It's just a big, long Sabbath rest, yeah. you know, and that's why um, the, the writer of Hebrews talks about that and says there still remains a Sabbath rest for us to enjoy, you know, and that's that the kingdom come. And yeah. so, yeah, they're, they're breaking the terms of the covenant. They're not allowing the land. Not only are they not taking the proper Sabbaths themselves, but they're not even allowing the land itself to have a Sabbath, um, which, you know, which Baruch in this chapter even refers to the land as, as his mother, right. you know? And so I think that that's interesting um, because it's, you know, obviously a place where they're nurtured for life. So that's why you would have that, that personification like that. Yeah. But um, do you want me to read two? Maybe do you want me to read two and three real quick? Because two is like just one sentence. Yeah, you can go ahead. I was just going to quickly comment on verse four there where it talks about, I will scatter this people among the Gentiles that they may do good to the Gentiles. Yeah, that's yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, good, good, good catch. Yeah, um, what, do you, what do you think that's about? Well, I just think that's about Yahweh's, you know, he promised to Abraham, right? descendants and so those who got scattered who are still in covenant are out there teaching the nations essentially to draw back into covenant with the father that this is an all-inclusive you know covenant 
this is an inclusive nation that you can be grafted into. And I think that's part of the purpose of why they they were all dispersed. It's like, okay, well, not only are you guys disobeying me, the land is being destroyed and you're not you're not obeying the commandments in regards to that. So I'm going to use this, spread you guys out, and you're going to, essentially, there's going to be pockets of you, remnants of you that are going to teach the, my commandments and it's going to be kind of a massive harvest in the end. Yeah, that, yeah, absolutely. Um, that is, and to me that, uh, let me find it real quick, but that is actually part of the initial um, covenant promise to Abraham. I believe it's in Genesis 13. Let me run there real quick because it was, he was saying to him, I will make you um, a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Right. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, Ken, it looks like here in uh, Genesis 12 that he actually um, is the initial promise to Abraham was that I think it's here in verse three. He says, I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then um, essentially he's just saying to him, look, through this, through this relationship, we're building through this covenant that Abraham established, that the father established. Um, Abraham established it through obedience. The father, father established it through providing for him, caring for him, you know, and through all their covenant meals and things like that. And then, of course, through Isaac being born, that was part of the establishment, which um, I believe you found in Genesis 18, where he even mentions um, in this whole concept of Isaac being promised in this moment where the angels show up and they actually tell him, hey, by this, when we return, you know, Sarah's going to be pregnant, basically, you know, and this is where they then later go off to Sodom and Gomorrah. So this same moment, it's a pretty significant moment where these angels come visit with the message from the father. And in that moment, they actually tell him, you know, um, because of what they're about to do, they, they share their information of what they're about to do with him in relationship to him becoming a great and mighty nation in the future and through him, all the nations of the earth being blessed. And so I think it's interesting. I wonder if they told him that simply because they were about to go destroy some nations. <laughs> yeah. It's like, don't worry guys. Yeah. <laughs> still stands. And we just going to, we're going to take a, you know, care of these guys over here. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, We're just going to amputate the gangrene, but uh, <laughs> in the long run, the, <laughs> the nations will be blessed through you, but yeah. uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and what was it? Abanim and Zeboim, those four cities, they had to be destroyed real quick. You know, that's another fascinating little um, little tidbit in that whole story is that Lot was saved because of Abraham, but the entire city of Zoar was saved because of Lot running to that place for rescue, for, for, for safe haven. Yeah. And so initially that was supposed to be destroyed too. Yeah, that's super interesting. I, I find it even more interesting that when Lot and his daughters went into that cave, you know, <laughs> <laughs> other than how crazy of a you know time that is um i wonder like how did they know i think you mentioned this when we were back in enoch did they possibly think that this was like the day of judgment like was this the day of the lord where everything is just like fire falling from the sky and this the nations are burning up do they think that this is literally it and we have to repopulate the earth here and then i don't know my only the only since we discussed that um, I've, you know, restudied this chapter. And the only thing that I would say might negate that idea is that he goes to the city called Zoar after while the other four cities are being destroyed. And then they go to the mountains to the cave. And the reason he, it says the reason he leaves Zoar is because he was afraid to stay there for too long because, you know, 
they would kind of know, Hey, how'd you know how to get out of there? You know, what's going on there? I mean, I'm kind of doing a little bit of conjecture, but the point is he was afraid to stay there uh, because those men were wicked there too, but they were still alive. That entire city, even though it was the smallest of the five, but that, that entire little community or village or whatever, they were still alive. So the daughters and their motivation and reasoning, I, I just, I don't, I don't understand it. Yeah. I don't get it. You know, like they, they knew there was an entire city with men in there that they were still there, but yet they chose to do this. It's very, very interesting to me in a, in a very brain scrambling type of way, you know, <laughs> yeah. that you're just like, none of this makes sense. This is weird. But, uh, but, you know, we're not dissecting Genesis right now. We're looking in the apocalypse of Abraham. Maybe in a future episode, we can uh, deep, dig deeper into Genesis. That's, that's always been a fascinating story for me. Um, you had a little Freudian slip there. We're in the apocalypse of Baruch, but we will get to the apocalypse of Abraham. As oh, did I say the wrong book? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's because what we're reading in this chapter actually ties into the apocalypse of Abraham, doesn't it? It sure does. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, um, so I guess that to me, that's that's how I would see this verse four playing out from the canon is that he's scattering the northern tribes um, and they're actually going to be rooted into the people groups of different nations, some through captivity and slavery, others just because that's where they fled and ran to and set up shop in a new country. And, you know, this to me, this would also fit perfectly with that that wonderful prophecy in Jubilees chapter six and also Jubilees chapter 23, where it says and then. You know, in the latter days, people will remember the covenants. It's also in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse, I think it's verse 3 and 4, when it says, when you remember my my words from all the places that I scattered you, you know, and then, and so it's leading up to the end of days, you get this concept of the people, wherever they're scattered under the whole heaven, you know, that suddenly they start remembering the, yeah. the ways of Yahweh and wanting to do them again. You know? Yeah, it's pretty crazy, man. Is it this book or is it Second Esdras, where it even talks about when the Assyrians came to get the uh, the ten northern tribes? Some of them actually broke away from that captivity and went even further. Do you remember? Do you remember that instance? Yeah, and I don't remember which book it is, but yeah, yeah that, that's that a fascinating little thing because it, it talked about how they went to the other islands or something like that. Yeah, yeah. and I've heard people theorize that um, the the Polynesian peoples are ancient Hebrews, hmm. uh, which would be people from Hawaii, you know? And then of course we've got in modern day anthropology, we have, you know, in the last 30, 40 years, Cherokee settlements, they found paleo Hebrew and the 10 commandments and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so people theorize the Cherokees are from the descendants of some of these scattered tribes, uh, which would be fascinating, right? Yeah. Because I'm part Cherokee, even, even if a small degree, but the point is whether you're true bloodline or not, all the nations of the earth can be blessed because you can come into covenant too if you start doing the commandments in faith and obedience. Yeah, amen. You know, and so it's just, um, but it's just interesting that I could be the fulfillment, Ken, of this passage. You very like well could me, be, Sean. Me talking right now, my channel, Kingdom in Context, what we're doing on this show right now, trying to edify people through the word to understand his principles, his way, how to come into covenant with them, how to enjoy a relationship with them. So our joy may be full and complete. Like Jesus talked about how to understand the gospel, of the kingdom to come and get in right. So that we can actually be considered worthy to attain the resurrection with Yeshua, uh, raising us on the last day, bringing us into Zion. And, you know, this whole concept of, of just all the steps towards our salvation. That is my passion to share with believers and unbelievers alike could be the fulfillment of this particular verse right here. Yeah. 
you know that's in my opinion i i think that's what it is to be honest with you which it's crazy excites me man it really does it's crazy man so right, um, go to chapter two here yeah chapter two let's look at that one real quick so guys we're in the apocalypse of baruch let's do chapter two and like i said ken unless there's something big in here do you want me to go ahead and read in the three yeah yeah absolutely okay, like we'll do chapter two and three real quick it says for i have said these things to you that you may bid jeremiah and all those that are like you to retire from the city for your works are to the city as a firm pillar and your prayers as a strong wall and i said oh lord my lord have i come into the world for this purpose that i might see the evils of my mother not so my lord if i've found grace in your sight first take my spirit that i may go to my father's and not behold the destruction of my mother for two things vehemently constrain me for i cannot resist you and my soul moreover cannot behold the evils of my mother but one thing I will say in your presence, O Lord, what therefore will there be after these things? For if you destroy your city and deliver your land to those who hate us, how shall the name of Israel be again remembered? Or how shall one speak of your praises? Or to whom shall that which is in your law be explained? Or shall the world return to its nature of aforetime and the age revert to primeval silence? And shall the multitude of souls be taken away and the nature of man not gain, again be named? And where is all that which you did say regarding us? So. Yeah, I, f I feel Baruch here. I'm trying to just, you know, imagine being this guy, hearing exactly, you know, what the Father has just said and being in that environment and, and witnessing, you know, the Chaldeans slowly coming, right? Just imagine the war sounds, the drums, and <laughs> just how they're described in other passages. Like, what a freaky time it would be. That's true, man. Um that's really true. Just on one hand, you know, like we're going to talk about, which is why he's asking this, which is why the next chapter the, the the father explains to the angel and consoles him and explains him kind of his misunderstanding, if you will. And yeah. what's so relevant, in my opinion, about this particular part here is because this is this is kind of the same mindset that we see uh, with modern day believers a lot that think that and you know that modern day israel is actually the fulfillment of prophecy and that this new temple is needs to be built you know and all this stuff it's like that same mindset of not understanding the eternal to come and thinking it's the temporal and the now and that that's what matters and is what is priority and we're you know it's not it's not at all so but i, I real quick i think it's fascinating that he uses this concept about the um, the pillars in yeah. verse two uh chapter two it says that for your works are to the city as a firm pillar and uh i believe isn't there a, a passage where it says uh make you pillars in the temple of my god yeah is that in revelation i think it's revelation chapter two yeah that's one of the promises that yeshua gives to what, which church was it i can't remember let me, let me check it out real quick um it's actually revelation three and uh three twelve let's look at this real quick That's a good spot, man. Revelation three. It's to Philadelphia. Okay. To the church of Philadelphia. Um, verse 11 says, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Hmm. So 
Beautiful. A definition of this concept. Like clearly, Ken, if you participate in the resurrection, you're not going to be turned into a pillar in this house, a stone pillar, not a literal pillar, right? I hope not. Uh That's right. <laughs> but how would your deeds, how would your works, which is what Pagos and Brooke is talking about here, your works are to this city as a firm pillar and your prayers as a strong wall, right? Well, that's the works are works of righteousness. So this is him, and which is why he says later on in verse six of chapter three, um, or to whom shall that which is in your law be explained, right? So the works of the law is what the order will be referred to as the firm pillar here, you know, yeah. the works of righteousness, which is why at the resurrection, we have these circumcised hearts, which do the law continually without failing. We do it perfectly, which is why it says we're made perfect at the resurrection. Therefore, Jesus can speak of us like this in the new Jerusalem. And I, I just love the fact that he ties it to the new Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. ironically, it's, you know, we're going to essentially see a synonym for that in the next chapter, right? But that's that, yeah, absolutely, man. That's a great connection, Sean. I like that. Um, what stood out to me in chapter three, where it says, or sorry, yeah, chapter three, verse two. If I have found grace in your sight, first take my spirit that I may go to my father's and not behold the destruction of my mother. I just made a video, Sean, called uh, Paradise Found on my channel. Hang on his words. And um I mentioned this passage and reference it to Ecclesiastes 12, 7, where it says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it, as well as Jesus' words while he's on the cross, just, just as he's, you know, giving up his spirit in Luke 23, 46, where he says, and Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So I just like how Baruch essentially is saying that, um, you know, take my spirit so that I may go to my father's. So it's a consistent understanding that we are made of flesh. We have a spirit that the father gives every man a spirit to animate the flesh, which brings about our, you know, what our soul is, right? Right. And so we see Baruch is essentially saying, please yank out my spirit so that my soul can go to my father. So I don't have to see the destruction of my mother, you know, the, the, the city here in front of me. So I just find that interesting. Yeah, and, and he understood, which is why he connects the two about his spirit being gone and then going to his father's. He doesn't go to heaven. His fathers aren't in heaven, right? Um, and as you wonderfully stated with your breakdown in your video and your explanation of Sheol, is that's that's where the soul goes. Because remember, the spirit of God hovered over the, the man, the clay, the atom, breathed into it and became a living soul. So that living soul is still there. And that's the collection of your information throughout your life. But the animating force is the spirit that animates the flesh and the, to, 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 you know, provide more information to the soul basically, you know? And so when the flesh is dead, uh, the soul has to go somewhere that, that, that entity has to go somewhere, but the animating force goes back to the father who gave it yeah. clearly. And everyone has the spirit of God in them, Sean. It's amazing to think about Yahweh is so, so, gracious and merciful even to the you know his enemies he he can yank the spirit right out of them anytime he wants and he but he allows it to stay in them for you know a certain amount of time is hoping that they'll repent and turn to his ways right it's amazing man i wish i could cite the, the address of the of the passage and and I, I can't remember which book it is but it talks about that there's just like a little aside phrase that this angel says you know when that when the uh, the time had you know had come that was that was decreed for this guy's life to end you know, I can't remember what book that is, but they talk about that. Like the angels know the time that of our death, basically. Yeah. That's already been decreed, you know? So, um, crazy. 
Yeah, it's it's really wild. But yeah, that's a good catch in verse two. Um, but he's also juxtaposing the idea of going to his fathers, which we see that in Acts twenty three about David, who you know who went to go to sleep with his fathers. Uh, we see that I think it's also in Genesis thirty eight with Isaac talking about going down to Sheol with his fathers, um, and then you know the, all these other passages we have where they're they're mentioning this concept. But he's not talking. He's saying, "I want to go to my fathers, so I don't see the destruction of my mother." That's right. So here we start to get this introduction of this of this personification of what's about to happen. Like we discussed last week, the actual Jerusalem and the temple itself are being destroyed. And he's referring to this in this fashion as his mother. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because we see that in a lot of the other scriptures, how um, the new Jerusalem and Zion are, are referred to as a mother, right? That's right. And personified in female form. So yeah, it's absolutely right. Um, and I think it's Galatians 4.26, where Paul talks about the new Jerusalem above. He calls it our mother above. Yeah. You know, so this would be, and this is, um, this is something that it, I didn't see for many years, Ken, when I was reading scriptures. And then as I started to really study the gospel of the kingdom of God to understand the new Jerusalem to come and how it was mentioned all throughout the prophets everywhere in the canon of 66, and also in these apocryphal books, it's mentioned everywhere too. And I was starting to see that, there was a a common referencing happening between the Jerusalem that was on the ground during the days of the history of the nation of of Israel compared to this Jerusalem to come, which is called Zion and was called mother Jerusalem. You know, this is the one that's that we see actually descend in revelation 21. But before that, the prophets have been already talking about mother Jerusalem that, which we see as the new Jerusalem later have been talking about it. A lot over and over and over everywhere in their epistles and their excuse me their writings and um and so that's why we even have a little mention of it from paul like that but sean well, it appears to me man that um sorry man I, did i cut you off there no you're good go ahead go ahead i was gonna say it appears to me that baruch didn't really understand what the true mother was he was referring to the city that you know he was obviously intimately connected with and and grew up in as his mother when in fact we see in the next chapter that's not the case i don't know if he refers to her i think he actually continues to refer to the the city on the ground as the mother but contextually i think he's he's giving the wrong name to the city <laughs> yeah he he really he's well again like he's he's still focused on the here and now yeah. um, because that was you know part of his life he was wrapped up in it it was their joy it was their pride um and that's okay that it was but the point was the father has to remind him, Hey, this isn't the real deal. Yeah. Remember Moses, even Moses was shown all these things as just a copy of the true tabernacle above, you know? And so, and you know, we even discussed last week, Ken, and since, since last week, this thought hit my mind, cause we were talking about, you know, the, how the angels showed Baruch, how they basically went into the Holy Holies and took all the artifacts out, including the Ark of the Covenant. And they did things with them. And we discussed that in depth. So go check out that previous episode. But, Ultimately, they even took the veil, and we talked about how at the crucifixion the veil was torn, and that seems to be a, a significant event, right? And and people and there's no mention of the Ark of the Covenant in the the Gospels, and so people wonder, well, did they have the the original Ark? What's going on? Did they did they make a replica? Can you make a replica? What's the deal? And even if they made a replica, I I don't I don't think it hurts anything if they make a replica. Because the, the one they made to begin with was a replica. replica. Yeah. 
You know what I'm saying? So like if they could hurt it is if Yahweh's presence actually went into it. Like, you know, when yeah. the ark tipped over and Buddy grabbed onto it and he died. I mean, that would be yeah. the, the difference. If Yahweh's going to decide to, you know, put his presence into an ark that people are going to potentially make, then maybe. But Well, because remember that the ark itself was just a container for the artifacts within it. Right? right, the staff that budded, the showbread, the the tablets that Moses received, those were the relics that the ark was holding that had significance to them. That because they, you know, were being used by God in in the events of Exodus and Numbers and things like that. But ultimately, the the ark itself was a box overlaid with gold, the decorative box right. that contained the power within it. But at the same time, when when that original box and and the artifacts inside of it are are dealt with by the angels as we read in last episode, then any new box they make is not going to have the showbread. It's not going to have the, the tablets in it. It's not going to have the, the staff that budded from Aaron. So it's just going to be a replica box with nothing inside of it. Right. Yeah. Was it, it was manna, wasn't it? Was there? Yeah, that, that's right. Exodus uh, yeah. 16 or 17. They put some of the manna in there too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's interesting, Sean. So yeah, it's, um, I mean, pfft. So ultimately, they, even if they had another replica Ark of the Covenant and veil and everything else, it's not the originals. Nor but specifically, if we get to the nitty gritty, of the details of the Ark itself, that they, they could have made a replica, replica box, but it may not have contained the power, you know, which yeah. was kind of significant, you know. So still, the whole purpose of this law and all the instructions for it was they were practicing something that was a copy and a shadow of the true tabernacle to come and the fulfillment of all this practicing where we do it perfectly at the resurrection. So that's just another reminder for the viewer of what we're reading, because this is the mindset that Baruch is also having to be educated on by his angelic vis visitations. They're having to explain to him, don't worry, bro. This isn't, this isn't the end all be all like this. There's yeah. a true tabernacle and that's what we're going to get into. Is there anything else in chapter three that, that, you, that stood out? Um, um, one last thing here in chapter three that, that might be interesting as a point of note, just in case people have a question about it. It's in verse six. Uh, it says, or shall the world return to its nature of after four time and the age revert to primeval silence. Now, can I, I'm not, I'm not sure what your thoughts are entirely, but on this one, for me, it seems like, you know, last week we, we saw that the, not just the temple itself was broken down, destroyed, but even its foundations were burned with fire. Um, and so the temple itself is completely messed over, done, right? That's right. And the walls um, of Jerusalem were being broken in because, you know, that the, that was part of the deal was the angels were going to break the walls themselves. And that's why the Chaldean army just walked in. They didn't even really, you know, they didn't have to like try to break down the walls themselves. They were already broken down for them. And it's kind of like this backward story of what we saw with Jericho back in Joshua chapter six. And so I just think that it's this primeval science being referred to is that they, from my understanding, they raised the entire city that the walls were broken down. They, they raised and burned much of the city that the foundations of the temple were burned. Um, which is why we see in Ezra chapter three, they have to rebuild the foundations of the temple itself. Yeah. So this, this whole primeval silence, you know, remember nobody was living there. That's why when the exiles came back seven years later, they had to, you know, cut away some of the forest that had overgrown. They had to fight off the animals and any marauding little clans that were trying to keep them from building it. They had to build and fight at the same time 
to try to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem again. So this place had just been abandoned. Yeah. At least that's the way it looks to me. Yeah, I just struggle, I guess, with or shall the world return to its nature of after time and the age revert to primeval silence? I, I think this is one of those moments where the translator is just using the word like we looked in Enoch. Yeah. The word haretz, um, which is often referred to as the world or the earth, but it's just talking about this land that they're in. Yeah. How about, do you think that it, it connects um, the sentence after the primeval silence sentence and shall the multitudes of souls be taken away and the nature of man not again be named? I mean, to me, that sounds kind of like the flood in a way, you know, where the souls of men <laughs> were drowned. I mean, man drowned and um, kind of clean the slate again. Is he thinking that potentially, like, is this the end of the world for us? Like, is this, you know? Well, they were already prophesied captivity, remember? So Jeremiah, um, in, in close relationship to Baruch, he, they already told him, hey, you know, you're going to Babylon. So get go there, plant vineyards, grow your families, set up shop there. You're going to spend 70 years there. There's no doubt about it. That's they were already prophesied the destruction and the captivity. And the nature of man not being named again, to me, this is just referring to the state of what he asked in, earlier up in the passage where he says, or to whom shall that which is in your law be explained? It's very complicated wording. Basically saying, who's going to explain your law to people? Well, in the explanation of the law is the nature of man. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this okay, is, this is the, you see what I'm saying? Like it, it reveals to you the nature of man. This is what, what Paul talks about where he's like, I wouldn't have known what sin was if it wasn't for the law. You know what I'm saying? I think this in Romans chapter six, maybe. But this this whole concept of him, like, and of course, with the, the pagan cultures and the the nations surrounding them, they're just doing as they wilt, right? They had their own hypocritical version of morality and ethics and justice, you know. But they're still occultic and pagan, and they're it's nothing like the true righteousness that was given to them through Yahweh's behavior in the law to understand not just the nature of man, but how to combat it with doing the deeds of the law. It's, you know, so yeah. that's just okay. the way I looked at it. Yeah, it's, it's it's you're right. The wording there can, you know, it seems a little misleading there, and we don't know what the actual um, word is there in the in original language it was written in. But um, yeah, that's interesting, Sean. So anyway, that's that's my theory. I don't know yeah. if it's entirely accurate, but that's how I would see it in relationship to the greater context of what the law is, how it interacts with man, how it reveals the sinful nature within man, and then of course how it leads us into righteous behavior. Um, and he's worried because he's like, well, then who's going to be doing this, right? Who's going to be knowing the truth, basically, right? If you take us away, we were the only people that had your righteous decrees. So yeah. Babylon doesn't, Egypt doesn't, Edom doesn't, you know, the, the Akkadians don't, the Greeks don't. They're all sacrificing kids and drinking blood. Like, what do you, you know, who's going to be the ones that are the bastions of your righteousness and truth if you take us away? You know, and so that's the way I read it anyway. No, that's per that, that makes sense. Contextually, if you look at the surrounding context there, I, I agree with you now yeah. that I, I see that. Yeah. Okay, cool. Anyway, so yeah, do you want to take up four? Yeah, absolutely. Chapter four, and the Lord said unto me, this city shall be delivered up for a time and the people shall be chastened during a time and the world will not give, will not be given over to oblivion. Do you think that this is the city of which I said, on the palms of my hands have I graven you? This building now built in your midst is not that which is revealed with me, that which pre prepared beforehand here from the time when I took counsel to make paradise and showed Adam before he sinned. But when he transgressed the commandment, it was removed from him as also paradise. 
And after these things, I showed it to my servant Abraham by night among the portions of the victims. And again, also, I showed it to Moses on Mount Sinai when I showed to the likeness of the tabernacle and all its vessels. And now behold, it is preserved with me as paradise. Go, therefore, and do as I command you. Wow. That's so, there's so much to unpack. We could do a whole show just on this chapter. There's, yeah, we absolutely could. There's so much to unpack. But right off the bat, just for the viewer's sake, we're going to unpack the statement here where he talks about, um, I showed these things to my servant Abraham by night among the portions of the victims. So next week, Ken and I have decided we're going to look into the apocalypse of Abraham because that whole book is actually referring to what's being spoken of here, which is where, and it's the Genesis 15 moment. That's right. Where Abraham does this covenant moment and he has this vision, which in Genesis 15, it's actually the, the moment of the vision is just referred to as terror and great darkness fell upon him. Um, and so this is an actual, the rest of the story we get from the apocryphals is that an angel shows up. Isn't that right, Ken? And he actually yeah. has an actual, that's the, that's the, with the words being spoken to him during that chapter in Genesis 15 was an actual visitation from an angel. And I'm going to leave this as a teaser. So you guys tune in next week. We actually get to see where this takes place and it's super significant. It is yeah. where this actual Genesis 15 moment takes place. It's it's super significant, guys. Yeah, and we're going um, to be touching on Apocalypse Abraham and Jubilees as well. And yeah, because it, it relates to Jubilees four, it relates to Genesis fifteen, it relates to Hebrews chapter four. It I mean it's it relates to all of Exodus. So this whole thing is like it's I think it's a great point of context for people to understand. And here Baruch is being reminded of it, just in case Baruch forgot. Yeah, that's awesome. You know. So Baruch is saying, look, and, and like you read in verse two, you know, through the angel, the father is saying to him, you really think this city is the one that I inscribed on the palm of my hands? Yeah. Sean, actually, you know, we see that yeah. reference in Isaiah 49, 16. Yeah. It says, um, behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. That's so, so cool. Yeah, and this is the the mother Jerusalem that we're talking about, right? Which is why he even calls it paradise at the end of that chapter. Um, you know, that of course reminds me of Jesus on the cross, right? Yeah. It says, you know, where do we place the comma in that? Today you'll be with me in paradise, or I tell you this today, comma, you'll be with me in paradise. That's right. So that statement, as you wonderfully laid out in your video, and I'm gonna flash the the, the picture up here. So you guys haven't already subscribed to Ken's channel, hanging on his words. He's putting out some great videos, very explanatory, very engaging. And he actually covers this particular topic, including Jesus's words to the thief on the cross next to him about paradise in his latest video. It's called paradise found, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Three exclamation marks. <laughs> so it's a, it's a great video. Go check it out. And, um, and we actually, he actually digs into this topic a little, a little bit even more, but just like you read in Isaiah 49, just now, the father through Isaiah was talking about this city that's inscribed in the palm of his hands. Um, I personally, you know, if I could get playful with it, Jesus had these uh, these these nails in his hands, right? Um, city was four square. Those big nine-inch nails were four square. Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> it's possible. It's a little bit of a conjecture, a little bit of a stretch, but... Uh, and it would be a proleptic reference at that, but yeah, it's interesting. Um, and it uh, surprise me if that somehow, you know, yeah, because as we know, Sean, the scriptures are just layered with so many gems and mysteries. 
Well, and even also, you know, I mean, it depends on how literal we want to take that phrase, right? And inscribed you on the palm of my hands, okay? okay? Because we also have in Revelation 2 where he says, those who overcome, I will give him a new, uh, give him a white rock with a new name. And then in Revelation 3, we just read like he'll write the name of the city of God on our heads, you know? Yeah. So You know what's interesting, Sean, actually, um, sorry, I didn't mean to derail you there. Um, you're good. I think it talks about how Yahweh's right hand planted paradise. So... That's right. That's interesting. You know, if, if he's inscribed paradise, the city on, on the palm of his hands and he's planting it with his right hand, that's, I mean, that's, I don't know. The image yeah. is neat. Sometimes the way it works, you know, I think with the Hebrew language, it, he intentionally makes puns out of everything so that it has multiple layers of meaning to it. Yeah. You know, so, Sean, so it's here, right here, it's in second Ezra's um, chapter three, verse six, it says, and you did lead Adam into the garden, which, or sorry, Adam into paradise, which your right hand had planted before the earth appeared. So, yeah, it's, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, real quick, before we move too far, I just wanted to, to connect with the viewer, the idea that, you remember, she was called the mother. Okay, so he's, so what we're reading about is this new Jerusalem to come, which was the Garden of Eden, was called Mother Jerusalem. Okay, and there's just a couple quick references here, because remember, what does he call, what do we call Yahweh, what do we call him? He's the Father, right? The Almighty is referenced as the Father. Uh, Enoch calls him the Lord of Spirits very often. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, he calls himself, I became a father to you, Israel, right? So he is speaking to us that Jesus said, when you pray to the Father, this is how you should pray, right? So we refer to him as the, as the Father. Isaiah 54, uh, verse 5, I know many people in the past have thought this is speaking to the people of Israel. But guys, I want to encourage you, this entire chapter is speaking to Mother Jerusalem, Zion to come the new Jerusalem to come, and the entire chapter of Isaiah 54. But just right here in verse 5, it says, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth, or the Elohim of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor I will rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Um, and I can keep reading on. It just goes on and on. But... Um, this whole point here is he's if the father is Yahweh and she is being called a wife, then it makes sense that she's referred to idiomatically like the mother. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. The children. Exactly. Yeah. And we're the children. Right. And so that's why as you, well, we didn't read all of it in Isaiah 49, but in Isaiah 49, it actually talks about how um, it's in verses 14 through down. I think obviously the lots of that chapter is speaking directly to her, yeah. but just in verse uh, chapter 49, verse 8 of Isaiah, he says, Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I've answered you, in a day of salvation I've helped you, and I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land and make it, them inherit the desolate heritages. So he's still talking to Zion, and he's saying, You will be for a covenant of the people. So we see that fulfilled. Right. This is what this whole concept of this new covenant is, is that we go into covenant with the land itself. This is why if you give me just if you bear with me real quick, uh, if we go right back to Isaiah 54. 
So we're going to look in Isaiah 54, uh, excuse me, um, actually it's going to be Isaiah 62. And then we've get, it's all about Zion again. This whole chapter is speaking to her. Yeah. But if we look in um, Isaiah 62 verses 1 through 5, it says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said you are forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land will be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God, your Elohim, will rejoice over you. It's amazing. So this is the wow. covenant fulfillment, right? Sons and daughters, their Elohim, which is Yeshua, the Messiah. We all are going to go into covenant with the new Jerusalem. This is what the marriage supper of the lamb is even all about. This is what, that's a covenant meal that's being had after the resurrection. So here we have Baruch being reminded, hey, this isn't the city you're seeing destroyed isn't the one. The one to come is the mother that's always been destined and prophesied. The one that's the garden returned. Right, so this this city that they took over from the Jebusites in the days of David, and set up shop, and then took the ta the you know the the tabernacle, and then Solomon built the temple later. This was a city that Jerusalem, the the ground based city of Jerusalem, that they took over, that was already there, yeah, and it was being inhabited by Nephilim clans. <laughs> like that wasn't the actual city to come down through the firmament as promised through all the prophets, and and Baruch is just having to be lovingly reminded of that real quick. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's amazing, Sean. Um, Sean, I wanted to quickly jump over to second Ezra's again. Okay. Um, chapter six here, it mentions paradise. Um, the first six verses of chapter six, it says, and he said to me, and this is Ezra at the beginning of the circle of the earth. I love that before the portals of the world were in place and before the assembled winds blew and before the rumblings of thunder sounded and before the flashes of lightning shone and before the foundations of paradise were laid. And before the beautiful flowers were seen and before the powers of movement were established and before the innumerable hosts of angels were gathered together before the heights of the air were lifted up and before the measures of the firmaments plural were named and before the footstool of zion was established and before the present years were reckoned and before the imaginations of those who now sin were estranged and before those who stored up treasures of faith were sealed then i planned these things and, and they were made through me and not through another just as the end shall come through me and not through another. I love how that's summed up to him there, man. That's just like, oh, just beautiful. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, we see paradise there, right? And that has foundations. And I mean, it's just so fascinating. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's a good catch right there. Um, and he's, he's actually listing off so many things we read about in Enoch, right? The different portals, the ferments. Um, yeah. Like he's just parroting. And of course... For the viewer who may who may not be familiar with Second Ezra, that's actually just another name for the book of Third and Fourth Ezra. So just like we have the book of Ezra in the modern canon of sixty six, apparently that one is supposed to be First and Second Ezra, and then there is also a Third and Fourth Ezra that was compiled into one book, but it's also sometimes called Second Ezra's, which is a little bit different spelling, but it's just the prophet Ezra that we already have, and and that one, you know. We haven't gotten to that one yet, Ken, but I mean, that one, 
I have no clue why that would even take that one out. Yeah. Like that makes no rhyme or reason or sense. You already got the guy's other writings in the book, in the canon. Why would you leave that one out? Unless you're trying to hide the creation model. Yeah. And a bunch of other things, Messiah included. Yeah. So like, I have a hard time giving any benefit of the doubt for them to try to remove that and hide that book. Because that's to me, like that's just a red flag straight off the bat, yeah. you know, uh, that there's some, something nefarious happening, but do you want to uh, read chapter five? Yeah, absolutely. Sean, actually, I, before we get there, I wanted to just point out that Paul actually knew in 2 Corinthians 12, also that paradise was in the third heaven or the third firmament. So Paul had an idea that, you know, paradise was removed and it was brought above the firmaments into the third one. So I just want to throw that out there. Yeah, I can read. Um, which which makes us understand that suddenly the creation model is not, is it has layers to it, apparently, it has structures to it. And its functionality seems to have some sort of elevator system for the garden itself, for the new Jerusalem and the garden. Like it, it can come down and be retracted and it come down again. And like, uh, it's just, it's wild. It's like the, you know, what do they call those in old houses? A dummy waiter, the little elevator that brings yeah, food I down. I don't know what they're called, called but yeah. 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 It's crazy. It, it's God's big dummy waiter. He's bringing down the land of food and blessing and inheritance. <laughs> well, I just, I love how second Ezra's here says when, before the firmaments were layered. Right. And then we have yeah. that obviously expounded upon in next week's episode, which we'll see an apocalypse of Abraham. He gets That's to right. see several layers firmaments. So That's right. exciting, guys. stay tuned and, and make sure you tune into that episode. But uh, chapter five here, Sean, um, did you want me to read it or did you want to read it? Cause I did the last chapter there. Oh, sure. I can read it real quick. Uh, chapter five. And I answered and said, so then I am destined to grieve for Zion for your enemies will come to this place and pollute your sanctuary and lead your inheritance into captivity and make themselves masters of those whom you have loved. And they will depart again to the place of their idols and will boast before them. And what will you do for your great name? And the Lord answered unto me and said, my name and my glory are unto all eternity and my judgment shall maintain its right in its own time. And you shall see with your eyes that the enemy, the enemy will not overthrow Zion, nor shall they burn Jerusalem, but be the ministers of the judge for the time. But do you, but do you go and do whatsoever I have said unto you? And I went and took Jeremiah and Adu and Sariah and Jabesh and Gedaliah and all the honorable men of the people. And I led them to the Valley of Kidron and I narrated to them all that had been said to me. And they lifted up their voice and they all wept. And we sat there and fasted until the evening. Mm. yeah sean i can't fault the guy for how he responds at the beginning of chapter five here you know he's just kind of like all right well i guess i'm destined to grieve for zion and like you know what about your name and i love how yahweh responds he's like my name and my glory are unto all eternity don't worry about it like <laughs> yeah you don't have to worry yourself about that yeah you handle your business baruch i'll handle mine yeah <laughs> it's kind of like i appreciate your concern but you're overstepping your bounds here yeah, <clears throat> and I, and of course, just so the viewer is not not confused, because we rarely do what we've done in the last two episodes. Okay, normally we've been going through this line by line, but in the past couple of weeks, we decided to kind of augment the format of how we're doing honorary kings to the degree where we're we're looking, we're still going through chapters connected to each other within this new book of the Apocalypse of Baruch we're looking into, and we're still going line by line, but we're not starting chronologically and going all the way through. So last week we did chapter six through 10. This week we're doing chapters one through five. Now, 
if this is your first time to, to find the video, you may have found this video before last episode anyway. And you may find it chronologically anyway, just about a happenstance. But the point I'm saying is in verse three here, where he says, you shall see with your eyes that the enemy will not overthrow Zion, nor shall they burn Jerusalem, but be ministers of the judge for the time. Well, we see the understanding of that. Okay. Jerusalem is burned and Zion is over. Well, the, the one on the ground anyway is overthrown and burned, but it's not at the hand of the enemy. That's why it says right here, it's at the hand of the angels of God that actually do this work. So this statement is still true because we see the fulfillment of that and how that actually plays out through his angels and not through the hand of the enemy in the following chapters, six through 10. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, man. Um, yeah. It's just funny, dude. Like I, I see Baruch kind of like in Abrahamic fashion, kind of negotiating subtly in a way with the father, like, well, all right, are you, I guess I'm destined to see, you know, Zion kind of crumble here. And are you, like, are you sure? Like, cause you have the power to make sure these Chaldeans don't come all the way here. And you have the power to not send your angels down to do what they want, you know, what you've instructed them to do. Are you sure you want to do this? Like, I kind of see this negotiating going on just like Abraham did for Sodom and Gomorrah there with Lot, but. <laughs> Absolutely, man. And what really, pains me though is that the more we study the apocalypse of baruch um you know people didn't think that he was a prophet and i'm sitting here going dude he's rolling with jeremiah he's or he's commanding and instruct jeremiah's taking orders from him we've already seen it in the, these last two episodes we've seen it twice um and you know i'm not saying that he was subservient to jeremiah i'm just saying i think they were contemporaries that just because he was the scribe of jeremiah may not put him in some sort of uh some sort of role of lesser importance because the father is showing him amazing stuff. Yeah. Just like Jeremiah, you know, um, in fact, I would almost contend that some of this is more detailed stuff than Jeremiah. Jeremiah, yeah. Jer no, don't get me wrong. Jeremiah is a big book. It covers a lot of different topics, a lot of judgment has day of the Lord stuff. It's got immediate prophecies for his day about the Babylonian. It even covers the, the first destruction of Babylon in Jeremiah chapter 50 and other places. Don't get me wrong. Jeremiah, solid prophet. God showed him a ton of stuff. You know what I mean? Um, but at the same time, it's like we've overlooked this guy, Baruch, who is just, he still seems to be on par with him. And the father is treating him on par by showing him and explaining to him all this amazing, significant stuff, you know? Yeah. I agree, man. It's almost as if we're seeing, we're seeing kind of the behind the scenes of when a prophet goes from a misunderstanding to a better understanding. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like, you know, all the stuff we just compared with Isaiah, the book of Isaiah to what Baruch is being shown. Baruch, Isaiah was already shown that. Right? Yeah. So it's almost like we're seeing the learning curve of this particular guy named Baruch as he's going from, as he's maturing in his walk with the father and the father's revealing more to him, you know? So at some point along the way, this happens with Abraham, this happens with Moses. And we see those moments of, of progress that's happening in their life. And as it's detailed in Genesis and Exodus. And, and this to me reads as that moment for Baruch. Yeah. You know, we're well, seeing him getting schooled basically. Yeah. <laughs> to become more mature and more effective, you know, as his role. Yeah. Even though he may have actually had a better education than Jeremiah, if he was the one that had to write things down. Not that I'm knocking Jeremiah or anything, but yeah, it makes yeah. you wonder why wasn't Jeremiah able to write this stuff on his own? Yeah, like what's going on there? Because, like we talked about in last episode, Baruch was actually many scholars attributed him to being the scribe who wrote, who physically wrote down 
uh, Deuteronomy through what second Kings. So that's a lot of books, you know, well-educated um, man. He knew what he's doing. Yeah. yeah the scribes, the, the scribes were not like, uh, the scribes were, yeah, like you said, they had to be better educated than others because they were ensuring that the words were perfect yeah. and that there was no mistake, you know, and they very had to know. Yeah. yeah, very meticulous. And so anyway, just a lot of food for thought there, but I, I'm continually impressed with the Apocalypse of Baruch. So much veneration with the Canon of 66, so much good explanation that, that it says in plain wording stuff that we already get and other things, right? Like second, second Corinthians, like Isaiah 49, 54, 62, uh, like Jeremiah 33, like Jeremiah chapter three, like, you know what I'm saying? So we get all this veneration and we even get mentions that directly correlate this stuff with Genesis 15, what we're going to explore in depth next week in the apocalypse of Abraham. Um, I'm really excited for next week as well, Ken. So yeah, um, yeah I look forward to, to reviewing that book a little with you and, and hopefully this will help provide a little bit more, of uh, variety for the viewer as we go next week we're going to look at the apocalypse of abraham and that's a fascinating episode so definitely don't miss that one absolutely sean and i think that we may have a um a future segue um just with verse five here in chapter five where it says where he taught he took jeremiah and the other ones to the uh, valley of kedron and then kind of narrated to them what he had been told I'm not sure if it's later chapters where you know Jeremiah's like physically leaves, but um, you know we we see the Epistle of Jeremiah, which is a interesting short book that we could probably cover in a in an episode where he's just instructing people that are going into the captivity to make sure while you're out in your captivity, like don't you know don't think this is like a free for all now. Like <laughs> remember why we're here, why we got to this place, right? So I think that would be an interesting episode to do uh, to cover that yeah. book because Jeremiah is essentially being told. I buy Baruch, you got to go. Right. Yeah. We see that as in last episode, that was in chapter 10, verse one. That's right. Uh, yeah. the, the word of the Lord came to Baruch and, and to tell Jeremiah to go and support the captivity of the people unto Babylon. And yeah. so it looks like the epistle of Jeremiah is fleshing out what that means. Right. Yeah. Giving so, us that, that backstory. Yeah. So, so I think if this were an episode of TV show, this would be that cutaway scene. Right. Yeah that sometimes they would leave on the, on the uh, cutting room floor and the editing. But then other times like the director's cut, they extend, they put in that scene where he goes and does the details of what's happening. Yeah. So. Cool, man. So if your game, we'll, we'll cover that maybe in two episodes or something like that. And uh, that way we're really connecting the dots with the extra biblicals. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah. We can definitely look at that. Cool. So there's uh, um, any, any last, comments or remarks um, on chapter five um no i just I, like i said i just find it interesting how you know baruch is, <laughs> is subtly negotiating here with his emotions you know pleading to his emotions here like father come on like are you sure you want to do this what about your name and stuff but yeah i think i don't have anything else to say about that man other than i feel baruch's pain i mean that would that would be a, definitely a, a sorrowful moment in time and uh you know it's not a funny matter absolutely not um there's uh, one little thing one last little thing in chapter five that i wanted to make sure the viewer's not mistaken about not, not misunderstood it's in verse one uh where it says for your enemies will come to this place pollute your sanctuary and lead your inheritance into captivity so we earlier had breaking down mother jerusalem in comparison with what paul talked about what isaiah talked about and explaining to her that, you know, 
I, I read from chapter 62 of Isaiah where it says, your sons and daughters will marry you. And then even in Isaiah 54, um, let me go there real quick. I just don't want the, the people to think that this is confusing, the terms. But Isaiah 54, I believe it's um, verse 17. So it says, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. Again, this whole chapter is speaking to Mother Jerusalem, Zion to come. It says, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. Every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me. Okay, so in context, many people think that this concept of, of being blameless and not being able to be accused and no weapon formed against them is their, is their inheritance. No, guys, our inheritance is the land. This is the promise in Genesis 17, 8 to Abraham and whom we are in covenant, right? right. The whole point of it all is that we get to the land of promise. This is the whole point of the metaphor of it all, of the, of the copy and the shadow of it all in the days of Exodus. This heritage that's the servant for the servants of the Lord, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. He is talking about everything that was just described in the, in the chapter and all previous 16 verses about the Zion, about the new Jerusalem to come. So yeah. that's our heritage. That's our quote-unquote inheritance is the land as a believer. But the Father, his inheritance is us. Yeah. Because it's already the land that we inherited is already his. He doesn't inherit it, something that's already his. That's his land. That's his house, right? The paradise of God, the literal house of God, which is what Isaiah 2 calls it, right? So he already owns that. You don't inherit what you already own. Yeah. At the resurrection... We are brought to him as sons and daughters, perfected. We are his inheritance. Yeah, he doesn't have us like that yet. That's why he wants us to get us like that. That's why he gave us his instructions to follow, so that we can attain the resurrection at the end of the age. Yeah. So, just it's so great, people understand the difference there. You know, great connection, Sean. Great connection. And I think it was yeah. in Jubilees where it talks about how you know Jacob or Israel is his inheritance. That's right. Yeah. 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 Interesting, man. Yeah. That's awesome. This was a really fun episode to do with you, man. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it a great, uh, great book to dissect, man. It's a lot of, a lot of good stuff in here. And we're just in the first few chapters. Like this book gets even better, by the way. And we're going to, we're going to get back to it. But like I said, we're going to start doing a little bit more variety uh, as far as covering different books to give people more exposure to uh, different types of apocryphal hidden and extra biblical books. So, um, Thanks for joining us again here on episode 15 of Honor of Kings as we delved into uh, the Apocalypse of Baruch, chapters 1 through 5. Um, next week, join us again. We'll jump into the Apocalypse of Abraham, and we're going to explain Genesis 15 like you've never seen before and hopefully make so much sense of that very mistaken passage. And we're going to explain what it's not, and then we're going to explain what it is from Scripture and from the very words of Scripture itself. So, um, we hope to see you back here next time. Ken, as always, man, it's great hosting with you. You as well, buddy. Yeah. yeah. Guys, thank you so much for watching. And uh, Yahweh bless you and, and keep you. And uh, keep, your, keep yourselves pressed close to him. And, uh, you know, test everything that we say. And check these extra biblical books out yourselves, guys. And uh, hopefully you're starting to see that there's some really eye-opening things that are contained in these books that we should perhaps have within our canons. So, Yeah. To me, it's like the father didn't give us, the father didn't give us a message that um, would lead to confusion. No. The enemy brings confusion. So if, if books that have been pulled out of the message leaves us in confusion, 
then I'm just going to say it's probably not the father's doing. You know what I mean? Now, as far as the famous passage in Proverbs 25, too, you know, it's the, the, the Lord's matter to, excuse me, it's the, uh, the, the glory of the Father to conceal a matter of the honor of kings to search them out, right? That's kind of what this whole show is based off of. But even within that, that concept, we only have to search it out, the matter, and it's only quote-unquote hidden because of our lack of understanding. It's because that's the point of him speaking to us is to give us understanding and quote-unquote wisdom. That's, that's the whole idea. But it takes us searching it out by being honest within ourselves, by being open to his words to test them, right? To see if they be true so that we can then suddenly realize that with understanding what he's actually talking about, that's the application of searching it out. It's so this concept of men 140 years ago, deciding to just take 14 or 15 books out of this thing. And, and then suddenly all these huge component pieces that help us understand the whole story are taken out. And now we've got thousands and thousands of confused denominations with all this variant teaching and people in mass confusion, and no one really even understanding what the gospel of the kingdom is in its reality. Yeah. That's not the Father. That's the enemy. The Father just wants us to search it out and test what he's showing. That's that's how we reveal the matter that he's that he's hidden in his word, right? right. So it's, it's, not, it's not this Gnostic mysticism idea. It's not this archaeological expedition like an Indiana Jones kind of concept idea. That's the enemy literally trying to hide things from you. Yeah. <laughs> So the father conceals the matter within his word, and it's because of our misunderstanding, our own ignorance, or our own hardened, rebellious, stiff-necked heart that we don't see it right off the bat. And we have to overcome by softening our heart, circumcising our heart, trusting his words, doing his commandments, and his word is exploded with understanding to you. And so this is our prayer for everyone watching this. And so we thank you for joining us. Yeah, you nailed it, brother. Yeah. All right, guys. See you next week. Thanks for joining us on Honor of Kings here on Kingdom in Context.